But the Bible does describe for us characteristics that he's looking for in us. How do you know that you are the kind of person that God wants to be in, to work with, to be part of his kingdom? And the Bible gives us that kind of characteristics. You know, if you fill in an online dating form, I've never done it myself, but uh, they ask you all these criteria. What do you want? Do you want somebody that's funny or wealthy? You know, and, and the Bible, in a sense, gives us that same kind of criteria. It says, these are the things that God is looking for in you and in me so that he can then work in us, but more importantly, perhaps through us, to bring his kingdom. And we've been starting to look at what those characteristics are over the last few weeks. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 gives us another of those characteristics that God truly looks for in his people. He said, these are the kind of people that I want to fall in love with, that I want to invest in, because these are the kind of people that that their lives are really attractive to the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we read Psalm 51 today, as we reflect on it for a few moments together, we ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you would teach us and guide us. Lord, we can read and and it just be words, but when your Spirit enlivens those words and touches into our hearts and into our lives, they become food for us and life-changing for us. So speak to us today, we pray, for we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, Psalm 51 is a psalm written by David, as you can see if you've got a little bit at the top here, for the director of music, a psalm of David. And it says, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. You remember David was there uh, at home, he should have been out fighting with the army, but he decided to stay back, a bit of rest and relaxation time. He was out on his rooftop gardens and he looked over the other roofs and there he saw this beautiful young lady, Bathsheba, who was having a bath or swimming or whatever she was doing up there. And he went, oh, she's really beautiful. I must, and so he, he sent for her. He said, get that woman, tell her to come over, give her an invitation to come see the king. And one thing led to another. He ended up sleeping with her and then dismissed her off again. And then word gets back to him from Bathsheba saying, I'm pregnant. And he's, oh my goodness. Well, I'll have to marry her. So he goes ahead to try and marry her. And then she said, you can't marry me because I'm already married. So then he starts to think, do you remember? And he he goes, well, who are you married to? And he finds out that it's one of the uh, commanders in the army, a guy named Uriah, who she's married to. So he says, well, I'm going to cover this up. So what I'm going to do is invite Uriah to come back home on a bit, bit of rest and relaxation. He'll go and sleep with his wife and everybody will think that it's Uriah and Bathsheba's son or daughter and nothing to do with me because they'll know otherwise that she's committed adultery because he's been out the front where David should have been fighting the battles. So he invites him to come back and says, come back and you know, you've earned this rest with your wife. And he says, how can I go and sleep with my wife? How can I even go in my own house when all my fellow officers and army members are out fighting at the front? I'm going to sleep in the front garden. And David's like, what is this? This isn't working. So he comes up with another cunning plan, which is that he sends him back. And when he's back, he tells the other commanders that when the fighting is fierce, put, put your eye up the front, in the front line. And when the fighting gets really strong, 
pull back and leave him there so that he's going to be killed. And that's what happens. And Uriah ends up dying and being killed off in the battle. Bathsheba mourns and weeps. And then David says, now you can become my wife. And because he's king, he thinks he can get away with it. But then God tells Nathan the prophet to go and speak to David. Nathan's slightly reluctant, as you can understand. But he goes and tells him this story. story about a, a rich guy and a poor guy. And, and the rich guy, even though he's got lots of uh, like produce, he decides to steal from the poor guy his only kind of cow or goat or whatever it is, and cook that up for his own feast. And David's livid, and he says, you bring this guy to me, he's going to pay for what he's done. And Nathan said, this is you. And then David writes this psalm. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm not a great songwriter, but if I was a songwriter, I wouldn't start writing about the biggest mess-up I've made in the history of mess-ups for everybody to read from generation to generation. It just doesn't happen, does it? You don't get number one in the charts, some guy saying, I've completely messed up, I've, I've committed adultery, I've cheated on my wife, I've, I've had somebody killed, and I'm going to write a song about this and see if it gets to number one in the charts, so that from year to year to year, every time they think of me, every time they sing this song, they'll know exactly what I've done. But this is what David does, so that even today... All these thousands of years later, we're still reading about it and recognizing and reminding ourselves of what David did with Bathsheba. This was you or me. We're to try to cover this out under the ground. Said, forget about that. Remember David and Goliath. Those are the good stories. Let's write songs about them. But let's not write songs about when he really messed up big time. So why do you think David would have done what he did. Why would he write this song for generations to come, reminding them of what a mess he made in life? I think it's because David, and this is the kind of key really today, David had such a passion for his relationship with God. He was overwhelmed by the forgiveness that God gave to him. And we'll see that as we read the psalm. So open your Bibles to Psalm 51. Let's have a look at it together. Because it gives us that insight, that characteristic that God's looking for each one of us, which is a heart that has a real passion for that relationship above everything else with God. First thing he says is that the relationship is key. Look at this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I have been a sinner from birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Let's stop there for a moment. Look at what he does. The first thing he does is he, he describes how he turned to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. He trusts in the character of God. He said, Lord, I've messed up. And actually in the story in Second Samuel, if you read it, chapters 11 and 12, that's exactly what he, he does. He says to Nathan, I realized I've messed up. 
I'm going to throw myself onto the compassion, but also the justice of God. And whatever discipline, whatever consequences God thinks is fair and just in this situation, then I will accept that. Because I recognize that I've messed up and I've sinned. And he says that here in the psalm. He turns to God and he trusts in God's compassion. He trusts in the character of who God is. And he prays, verse 2, for his own cleansing. He admits that he can't clean himself, that he can't fix the problems himself. He says, Lord, I'm helpless in this situation now. I've gone down this pathway and I can't get myself back up again. There's nothing I can do that can undo what's already happened. We can't bring her husband back. We can't pretend that I've never slept with her. We can't pretend that there's not a baby growing inside of her. I can't undo the mess that I've made now in my life. All I can do is trust you and pray for a cleansing, a new start from you. And so he seeks help in the only place that he can, in God. And then he confesses the seriousness of what he's done. So often when we mess up, We try and minimize what we've done, don't we? Starts at an early age. If you had brothers or sisters, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Soon as you mess up, whose fault is it? Well, it's not my fault. My brother. You know, he was two years older, therefore he's far more responsible than me. Because he should have guided me in the right pathway. He shouldn't have let me get into these predicaments, even if he wasn't even around at the time. He has no excuses. And then if it's not his fault, it's because it's my parents that didn't bring me up right. You know, it's got to be their fault for not not teaching me the right way. Otherwise, I wouldn't have got into this mess in the first place. And so we, we always try and divert attention away from ourselves. We see that everywhere in our community and in our society. That I'm I'm just not it's not nothing to do with me. Saw it in the recent elections. Whose fault is it that we're in so much debt in this country? Well, it's not our fault, is it? Well, it's got to be the previous government. No, no, it's the one before then. No, no, it's the one before then. Because it's nothing to do with us. It's not the fact that we want a lifestyle that's unattainable, that's, that we can't maintain. It's, it's, it's someone else's fault all the time. And we don't take that responsibility on ourselves very often. And we do that when we come to messing up with God and with one another. First thing we try and do, our defense mechanism kicks in and says, you know what, it's it's not me. But David doesn't do that. He says, I know my transgressions and my sins are always before me. He's saying in verse 3, I just can't get it out of my head. You know, it's there. It's always before me. I know what I've done. I wish I could undo it, but it's there. I I can't undo what I've done. It's always there. It's there when I sleep. It's there when I wake up in the morning. And then look what he does in verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He recognizing that all sin basically is spiritual, not just physical. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he sinned against his people and let them down. But he's also sinned against God. And ultimately, our sin is always a damaging of that relationship. He doesn't minimize what he's done. But he's saying, you know what? When I, when I pull it all back, when I take it all away, yes, I've sinned against these people around me. But God, 
I've also sinned against you. Actually, what it is, it's a spiritual thing that we've broken these relationships. You know, it's those relationships that go back to Genesis, isn't it? Adam and Eve, what happens when they decide to do their own thing? They break the relationship with God, the relationship with themselves, with one another and with creation. And all sin does the same thing. Yes, we sin against one another, but it it impacts all four of those different relationships. And David here focuses on the heavenly relationship and says, Lord, I've sinned against you. I've done evil. I've broken that relationship with you. And I, I can't undo the other ones. But is there any way I can somehow repair what's gone on between us? And look what he also does. He vindicates God. He doesn't blame God. So you are proved right when you speak, verse 4, second half, and justified when you judge. He doesn't bring up any excuses. There's no defense that he tries to bring. He just says, Lord, I've messed up. And then he carries on. He he recognizes his own weakness in verse 5. Surely I've been a sinner from birth. Not as an excuse. He's not saying, God, you created me like this. It's your fault. But he's saying, you know what? I look back in my life and I see the pattern of this. I've been sinful from the time my mother conceived. He he sees a pattern of weakness and a pattern of of messing up in, in small things as well as large things. And he sees that reality, that weakness within him that he's never really dealt with, that he's never sought to tackle, but he's just kind of accepted it and tried to suppress it until this moment where it's all come out. Surely you desire truth, it says in verse 6, in the inner parts. He's saying the heart is the thing that really matters. That actually it's not just about externals. It's about what comes out from the inside that really counts. Because he recognizes that if the inside of him is pure, if the inside of him is holy, then what his reaction to situations and and the, the life that he leads will naturally be holy too. But if the outside, if you just try and control the outside, the inside will just keep bursting out. It's impossible to do that. You see, David sees the depth of the sin within him. Told people on Tuesday, you remember the, uh, last week those uh, wild winds that we had at the beginning of the week? I heard this big crack outside the house. I thought, what is that? And I went out the front and the lilac tree comes straight down over our front wall lying in the street. So I went and I cleaned it all up. But when I looked at it, and I thought, like, why, why is that? Some of the younger shoots that were coming out from the base, they're still there growing with the lilacs on top. But the main stem just went straight over, snapped off. And I looked inside, and inside the middle of that core was just all powder. There was nothing there. The outside looked like a fine tree. There was blossom all over the tree. It was looking lovely. I mean, I wish it had happened a few months later when the blossom had gone because it was looking gorgeous. Everything was looking fine, but the inside, it's just fiber and, and, and you can just take it out. It looks like kind of sawdust and, and, and things. And there's nothing there holding the core of that trunk together so that when the strong wind blew, 
the whole tree collapsed, whereas the young shoots, the young ones that are coming up and still blossoming now, they're still there because they were able to bend with the wind. David says here, he sees the depth within. He sees that sin within himself. He said, you know, even on the outside I might look beautiful, I might be flowering, but inside I know there's that rotten core that's there. And that's what he says to God. He says, you need to sort that out. He recognizes the consequences of what he's done, those wrecked relationships. And he recognizes too his hopelessness. And he throws himself onto the only one who can release him from this constant cycle. The first thing that God looks for in us, in that passion in our hearts, you can recognize it with people who are quick to forgive others and quick to receive forgiveness from God. They recognize who they are before a holy God. And every time they mess up like David, they say, Lord, here I am. I trust you. I trust our relationship. Lord, I, forgive me. But look what he does too. Let's carry on. Verse 6 to 9. He says, second half of verse 6, You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. What he does is, listen to, he, he says, first of all, Lord, teach me. Verse 6b, teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Teach me that wisdom inside. He has a capacity to want to be corrected and to grow in God. First thing he says, Lord, I'm, I'm a student. You're the master. Teach me. I need to grow here. Second thing he says, look, I'm willing to change. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Lord, he's saying, I want to change. I don't want to stay like this. I want to become something else. I want to be washed. I want to be clean. I want to be holy. I don't want to stay as I am. I don't want to go down this road ever again. So Lord, transform me. Correct me. Teach me. Wash me. Verse 8, he says, I'm, let me hear joy and gladness. I want to listen to you. I want to hear what you want to say to me, God. Teach me. I'm listening. And verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my... Lord, forget the past. I want to move on and grow. I want you to look to the future so that the past stays in the past. Let's, Lord, I've asked for forgiveness. It's done. It's finished. I will live with the consequences. But Lord, I don't want to stay there. I want to become something else, something new. And David had this amazing quality that he's willing to go to God for correction and for learning. I had uh, interviews here a few weeks ago from a young couple that are looking to go out to Brazil as missionaries. One of the questions I always ask, in fact, I asked, uh, I think, uh, when we had interviews here for uh, any of the staff members, question I always ask is, what is God teaching you in your life right now? What is he? What is he teaching you in those quiet times with him, in your life journey with him? What is he teaching you right now? It's a good question that we should all be asking ourselves all the time. 
What are the lessons that God wants me to learn right now? What are the areas that he's, he's, he's working on in my life to teach me, to help me to grow? It's interesting hearing the answers from people. Often they're, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. Oh, and it's, it's a, not an easy question to answer sometimes. Sometimes it's quite easy, but sometimes it's like, well, how do I know what God is teaching me? We have to really stop and think and say, well, actually, he's been showing me this here and, and this here, and, and I can see how it all fits together. This, I think, is what he's trying to help me to understand and to grow and to learn. And David knew what God was trying to teach him, and he was open for that constant cor- correction in God, that constant growing in his relationship. What's God teaching you right now? And lastly, David had a life that was yielded to the plans of God. Look at this, verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit in a, co- a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, the whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David says he wants a life that is yielded to God, yielded to the plans of God. He wants a right heart and a right spirit that's in tune with God. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. In other words, Lord, let me have a life that is in tune with yours. I want a life that is following where you want me to go, that is listening to your voice, that is becoming more and more in tune with your character and who you are. I'm not interested in going my own way. I'm not interested in doing my own thing. I've seen where that results in this complete mess. I want a life that is in tune with you. And the only way you can do that is by asking God to create that kind of heart within us that yearns and seeks for him. He says, I want a right family with you. Don't cast me from your presence, verse 11. Take your spirit from me. I want to stay in that close proximity with you. I want to be attached to you, like the vine and the branches in John's gospel. I want to be attached through the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't, don't ever do anything, Lord. Don't let me do anything that will mess up that kind of relationship and that intimacy together. He wants joy flowing through him. How? Through an openness to to God. Restore to me, verse 12, the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Open my spirit up so that your joy may flow in me and through me to others. And that's what he says next. Not just for myself, but I want to go and teach others your ways, verse 13, so that others may not get into the same state that I got myself into, but that I can help them by helping them see where they're going and help them to with, with allow the Spirit of God to turn them back from the path where they are.
to a different path. He wants to have the same heart that God has for others. Not just, it's not just about his relationship with Almighty God, but it's about him restoring the relationship, or God restoring the relationship with him so that he may help others to have that restored relationship too and lives surrendered to God as well. And where does that all go? It goes into praise and a focus on God. When we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, when we focus on our Heavenly Father, the response is always praise. When you think about what God has done for you, what can you do? What's the response that you can give? All you can do is sing praises to Him. You can offer your life to Him. When we come and we kneel at the rail and we, we recognize how much it costs Jesus for our relationship with Him, all we can do is sing praises and say, Lord, I just want to lift my voice, lift my heart as I'm lifting my voice to you, as I'm singing praises to you. I want to just acknowledge with my mouth, with my being, just how amazing you truly are. Let me sing praises to you. And lastly, really quickly, he says, I want to have a broken, a broken spirit, verse 17, a broken and contrite heart. He says, I want to have a life that is continually surrendered to God. That's what he means. He says, you don't, you don't delight in offerings. Anybody can bring you money, put it in the plate. Anybody can bring you an offering, a gift, and give it to you. He says, you're not interested in that. What you're interested in is us giving to you out of a heart that is broken to you. Out of a heart that continually surrenders to you. So the gift comes because of a heart that is just desiring to give. Not because we have to, but because we want to. It's not out of duty, it's out of love and relationship. And that's why David wrote this psalm. He said, I don't mind who knows about how I've messed up. Because if they read this and recognize how I've messed up, which is probably worse than anybody will mess up, but they recognize how God can restore through his spirit, how God can forgive, how God can do that in David's life, then he said, you know what? He can do that in your life too and in my life as well. And he said, how does he do that? He does that when we have a heart that is yielded to him. That's what God looks for in you and in me. He looks for a pure heart. He looks for a steadfast spirit. He looks for a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. He says, I want to see people whose hearts are following God with passion. They don't have to be the most gifted people in the world. They don't have to be, you know, in church every five seconds. They don't have to be the wealthiest people or the most handsome people or beautiful people. What they have to be is people who have that burning desire within them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to do what he wants to do, to put God first in your life and to say, Lord, I want to follow you no matter what. As you come and eat and drink this morning, look at your heart. Has it got that kind of passion within it for God? Come Wednesday or Thursday this week, will you have the same passion within you for the things of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's what he's looking for. 
He wants to look and see and say, you know, there, there's my son, there's my daughter. Look at their heart. Look at the passion within them. They're not perfect. Any more than David was perfect. But there's someone that I can invest in because they have that openness, because of that love that they have for him. That's what God looks for in you. That's what God looks for in me. And those are the people that God invests his blessing in and through. Because he knows you're not going to keep it to yourself. That you will be a channel of that blessing that will touch others and bring his healing and his wholeness and his blessing into our community. Let us pray.